Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Ashling Drummond is a BRCA2 gene alteration carrier and a peer to peer support volunteer with the Marie Keating Foundation. She's lodged a formal letter of complaint to Professor Richard Oleda, Director of the National Cancer Control Programme, and to the Board of St. James's Hospital. She says the National Cancer Strategy. 2017 to 2026 has failed her and women like her in the BRCA community. Ashling is currently in the process of transferring her treatment from the hospital where she's been under the care of the Family Risk Clinic since 2015 due to being sidelined for cancer preventative surgery facing wait times that leave her highly susceptible to developing breast cancer. She'll join me to tell her story. And I took another trip to Wicklow It is just a county full of wellness offerings. I am willing to travel anywhere, but back I went to one of my favourite places and this time I went to Off Grid in Bray. It's an infrared sauna studio and wellness space and you can find out how long I could last in the ice bath after my sauna a little bit later on. So what kind of health and wellness week did I have? Well, it was a good week. I mean, we can't complain. The summer is great. I am watching people cycling by me, groups of teens heading to the beach. People are smiling. The days are long. I spent a weekend in Leash with my family in a gorgeous glamping place I would recommend called Glamping Under the Stars. I know I spoke about it last year when we went. We stay in the Hobbit houses. So you're talking proper bed, shower, toilet, kitchen on site, barbecues and campfires. So I can't say it's anywhere near survival or camping, but it is so nice. We went for walks and we went to an outdoor community pool in Ballinakill and I think it's just such a great amenity and more places should have them. There's a huge playground beside it and there were loads of families there. And I often think, especially as my kids are getting that bit older, that there's so little, particularly in my local area, for teenagers to do, places for communities to come together. I think in town planning, there should always be plenty of green spaces places for people to congregate. And yes, our climate means that much of the year is spent indoors. So there should be community centre with pools, pool tables, cafes, places where people can come together. And I know lots of areas have these, but many don't. And this country has changed a lot. We don't all meet at church every Sunday. We need places where people can come together and support each other. And that needs to be factored in. Anyway, I had a lovely few days. I was in England on the Friday as my cousin, who has always been like a big sister to me as I'm the eldest in my family and I didn't have one. Her husband sadly died of cancer aged 60. So I went to the funeral and helped them to say goodbye. And I flew back into Dublin and drove straight down to Leash. And I didn't take one second of my family weekend for granted. And I don't think we could or should go around day to day, being conscious of all the bad things that could happen and do happen to others. I think we'd be in a ball if we did. It's a necessary part of life, I think, that we just go with the flow and forget how lucky we are and what a privilege life is. And to celebrate it, I forget it too all of the time. But I was fully in it last weekend with my kids, with my husband taking in all the nature around me. 
And I've been thinking about how when we're on holiday, we are obviously more relaxed. We're out of our routine. And of course, that's easier when you're in a resort or up a mountain or sitting by a hotel pool. But part of how we are on holiday can come home with us. Permission to relax and stop and take it all in for a start. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Ashling Drummond is a BRCA2 gene alteration carrier and peer-to-peer support volunteer with the Marie Keating Foundation. And she has lodged a formal letter of complaint to Professor Richard Oleda, Director of the National Cancer Control Programme and to the Board of St James's Hospital. Professor Oleda has ultimate responsibility for implementing the recommendations of the National Cancer Strategy 2017 to 2026, which Ashling says has failed her and others in the BRCA community. Ashling joins me on the line now. Hello, Ashling. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me on. You're on the phone to us from West Cork. Are you getting all the lovely weather down there at the minute? It's stunning. There isn't a better place in the world you could be than in West Cork at the moment. Certainly not. Now, before we get into the issues that I alluded to there that you have with your treatment or lack thereof, can we go back to the start of your journey? So you were just two weeks married when you discovered you had the BRCA mutation. Tell me a bit about that time. Yeah, so I suppose my dad had tested positive for the BRCA2 alteration before Christmas of the year we were due to be married. And I really didn't think much of it. His sister had died of breast cancer when I was much younger and put it to the back of my mind, was referred into Crumlin Children's Hospital where the genetics clinic was at the time and still is and um, got my appointment and had my blood test done and spoke with the genetics counsellor in there at the time. But obviously, when you're getting married, you've got other important things on your mind. And um, I had asked them not to contact me, I suppose, until after the wedding. Um, I thought I would be a lot stronger getting bad news than I was. I received the results over the phone, which I consented to. And I was in work at the time and it completely floored me. And I suppose every decision that we've made, which has wound up with my entire family living now in West Cork, with three cats and a goat and a dog and a plethora of other chickens has totally resulted in everything that happened from receiving the news that day um, that I have got a BRCA2 alteration because it is life-changing and I don't think there's a strong enough appreciation for the psychological impacts that happen to just get a result like this. And can you explain to people what that means, the BRCA2 gene alteration? So essentially, anybody who in in Ireland at the moment, the way it works is anybody who has a direct family member who has tested positive for BRCA1 or BRCA2 is um, eligible to go and be tested for this gene. Um, It increases um, on on loads of different levels and it's very important to include men in this conversation as well. So it increases cancer risk in both men and women across a number of cancers, primarily breast and ovarian um, and that's also breast in men. Pros- prostate cancer in men is obviously another one that is um, is an issue if you're a BRCA2 carrier. So depending on your BRCA1 or BRCA2 status, depending on whether you're male or female, essentially it can increase your risk of breast cancers up to 90%. Um, and your risk of ovarian cancer is also quite high in, re- in relative terms to the general population. Um, prostate cancer in men is 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 30, 31 or 33 percent if you're a BRCA2 carrier in comparison to the population, which can be one to three. So um, there's huge, huge life altering decisions that need to be made once you receive this news. And it's a very 
strange sphere to be in because for many people who get a result, a positive result, they may not have any symptomatic cancer. They may not have any symptoms. They could be a very healthy person living their healthy lives. And then they are faced with this news that they're basically a ticking time bomb. And you spend a lot of your time thinking and waiting and checking for cancers to appear. So it's it's a very, um, I suppose it's a very alienating circle to be in. And it certainly was at the time that I got my result. There wasn't a lot of resources there. The Marie Keating Foundation peer-to-peer supporters were only established as a result of a, a few of us kind of shouting loudly about the lack of support and like lack of psychological supports. So at the time when I got my result and for many, many women and families before me, it was a very lonely space to be in. You, you feel like you don't particularly fit anywhere. Um, and I would say that the rhetoric and that the, the language used by clinicians and the medical people that we're meeting would marry that. Um, we're, not, we're not treated as seriously, I don't feel, as we should be. And I suppose it was made famous by Angelina Jolie when she spoke about having uh, preventative surgery through a double mastectomy. And that's where the BRCA gene really in, uh, exploded in, in people's consciousness. Is that the first time you were introduced to it too? I I was. I, I mean, I remember hearing that news, but not fully understanding it. I was, you know, I, I think probably a young teenager at the time or a little early 20s at least. But um, it, it, it has become known as, I suppose, the Angelina Jolie gene. And as we dwell, say that any kind of um, exposure to this is good exposure. And when somebody like Angelina Jolie, who who is known for her, you know, her, I suppose, her beauty and her prowess and, you know, her strength as a woman is able to come out and say, I've made this decision to protect myself and I've made this decision to ensure that I'm around for my family um, and to ensure that I I don't have to go through cancer. I don't have to let them see me go through radiation or chemotherapy. It was a a massive coup, I suppose, in many ways to put a spotlight on something that really should have had a spotlight on it in the first place. Sometimes it does take a little bit of of, of fame or, you know, somebody that comes forward um, for that to happen. Um, it, it It really stayed off my radar then for a long time. And I think until you're in it, until it's happening to you in a lot of these circumstances, um, you don't really understand the gravity of the decisions that she made as a woman, as a public figure, um, and as a, as as a mother. So it's it's really brave decision making uh, processes that people go through, and it's it's definitely not easy, and it's not something everybody chooses. You can choose surveillance, um, and have like MRIs and mammograms annually, but essentially a lot of women, and I suppose it's misrepresented sometimes by our representatives would say that it's a minority of women would choose mastectomy. From my experience and from the women that I deal with, it's absolutely not the minority. Uh, uh, most women that we talk to or most women that I deal with on, on in my work with the Marie Keating Foundation are opting to have mastectomies. The problem is they can't get access to them. So they're living for years and years at the moment in Ireland with this, as I said, ticking ticking time bomb and all of the psychological implications that come with that. Um, and they are not being given access to a, a treatment that is inverted commas elective, but essentially um, it's something that we would see as life-saving. So that is where our big struggle is at the moment as a bracket community. And I suppose even subconsciously, like you're right, the fact that Angelina Jolie is known as an actor, but also famed for her beauty. And she said, I'm taking very extreme steps with my body 
to protect my health ultimately that we may have thought, oh, well, that's very extreme. And, you know, maybe that's to do with the money she has. And, and that may have been bubbling around in the background. But it is very necessary surgery, isn't it? When when the stats are so high, I mean, somebody without the BRCA mutation, the likelihood of them getting breast cancer is 12 percent. But somebody with the mutation, as you said, it's between 40 and 85 percent or in some cases 90 percent. So that's where it moves from elective to life saving. What were you told were your options on the table? And 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 that's I suppose that's where my letter to the NCCP has come from. At the moment, there is, and oh gosh, at the moment there's two thousand seven hundred and sixty nine people just in St James's Hospital waiting to be tested for the gene. And Noel Gorman in St James's, the COO, has confirmed that for a routine appointment, which many of these would be, you could be waiting for 18 to 24 months. So if you find out that somebody in your family, be it a, a direct relative, like your aunt, your grandmother has carried a bracket gene alteration and you decide that you want to get tested, you could be waiting for up to two years. Then you're waiting for your results. And then if you get in to meet the clinical team in St James's at the moment and you have, say, finished your family and you've decided, actually, I'm going to go straight ahead with this surgery. To even see the surgeon, I'm waiting 11 months now since I've made the decision to go ahead with my surgeries. I still have not seen the surgeon. Once you get in to see the surgeon, they're talking about another two years. So we're five years deep into this now at this point before anybody is getting the opportunity at the moment to have this surgery. Um, So it's a very long time to a, wait, but B, it's a very long time to see if like a breast cancer appears, you know, and I have absolutely no doubt and we can't get these figures because nobody is collating them. But I, I would imagine that if we dug deep enough, we would find out that there are women presenting with breast cancer on these wait lists that could have been prevented. And that's where my anger is bubbling from. And that's where the anger in the community is is bubbling from, is that it's just not good enough um, to have women who know that they could potentially get sick um, and who are making the brave decisions to put themselves forward for these treatments are being denied these treatments. Um, and it's it's really just not good enough. And what we're told about cancer is the earlier you catch it, the better. But you're looking to even get in ahead of, of all of that. And surely the treatment for eventual cancer is far more costly in the long run than this elective surgery is that would that be right absolutely i mean on a purely monetary point of view um you're looking at cost savings not that anybody's cancer treatment should be treated like that but it is a lot more expensive to treat a woman like me for a symptomatic breast cancer and then it is to to treat me ahead of time and as we well know prevention is better than cure that's not something we need to tell the hsc or the nccp that's just something that the general population of the world is aware of if you can prevent something from happening instead of having to treat somebody um that's much more cost effective. But also just from a mental point of view, I mean, I physically, mentally don't want to have to go through cancer treatment if I know that it's avoidable. I understand that there are women who present with breast cancer and present with symptoms who are unaware, A, maybe of their BRCA status or maybe don't have BRCA and are just one of the general population. And and those women will go through their traumas and they'll, they'll go through everything that they need to go through and they'll do it bravely and they'll face it head on. But I'm sure that if any of them had the opportunity to say, hands up, would anybody like to stop this journey from happening at the get-go? 
you know, you can imagine how many people would put up their hands and say, yes, please, I would rather not go through that, that horrific treatment. So I personally do not want to be in a position where I'm sat on a wait list and then I find a lump because I think I've been in this, this system now since 2015. I've made decisions on my family planning based around the timeline set out for me, which was complete your family you know, make sure that you're okay with your decision making. I've gone through my psychological analysis. I, you know, they've they've given me the all clear to to have this surgery. And yet now I am a year into another at least two years of the process, um, if 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 not more, you know. And honestly, I think our confidence as a community in in the HSE and what the NCCP are trying to roll out at this point is lacking. Like we, unfortunately it seems like another talking shop and another steering committee and while you know a lot of these things can be applauded the idea that there's delays because of covid and that you know symptomatic breast cancer patients are being prioritized because of covid many 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 of these issues if not all of them were very much alive and kicking <laughs> forgive the pun uh, pre-covid i mean they're the like the, the family risk clinic in St. James's Hospital was curtailed in 2018. So it's disingenuous of the rhetoric that's around at the moment that, that COVID has caused m- many of these issues. Um, my colleague Nicolette Warner actually has just published a paper last week where she did a qualitative study on families and women and men and their experiences of the Irish system. Um, and her interviews took place in March 2020 to May 2020. So all of the experiences that she collated in her study were all pre-COVID. And it doesn't make for nice reading. Lots of traumas that could be prevented. Lots of misinformation out there. And this is not a this is not a COVID issue. And I think that's what we're being told, you know, that that that's, everybody's under a bit more pressure. But we've been kind of shouting about this for, for a long, long, long time. And COVID has absolutely added pressure. But it's where the cracks were already beginning to show they've now broken apart, you know. And to be clear, I feel decisions should be made based on empathy, compassion and from the heart. But sometimes when you bring the financial into it and the head you think that that might speak to the business of healthcare, but yeah, absolutely. I I I think this should be looked at with compassion. So your plan and decision that you made was to have a mastectomy and your ovaries removed. So again, going back, you were just a, a newlywed. So most couples think, oh, let's be married for a while and then maybe let's talk about kids or maybe let's not. But you really had to bring all of that centre stage. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely focuses the mind um, when you have to, I suppose, I mean, people that are trying to start families and trying to get pregnant know the pressures you already can be under. Um, it, yeah, I, I mean, we didn't really get a newlywed phase. You know, it was two weeks and then it was straight into ovulation apps and, you know, not exactly very amorous post, you know, wedding fun. It was it was all very quite serious, really, you know, and big life changing decisions that we would have had like a five year plan that we would work and do really well and get X promotion and go to this job and then maybe, you know, buy a, a house with some land somewhere kind of outside Dublin. I mean, we were never 
West Cork people, really. Um, and our our entire decision making process was pushed forward by about five years. You know, inter- I, I wasn't particularly ready to have children. Um, my husband probably was, but I I had different ideas for where life was going to go. Um, I wouldn't change anything really now. I, I think it's it's much harder when you're in it and you're trying to make the decisions at the time. But it's taken us the guts of six years my little man is six on Monday it's taken us so obviously more seven years to have our two children and that that was the priority was to try and start our family and finish our family and so it's it's taken us that long to to have our two children so we the the family planning element of, of it is something that people probably don't again, don't really consider or think about from a psychological point of view. It's very hard to tell a woman to plan their family and then cut it off at a point where they feel comfortable to have surgery. Um, So obviously I could have the breast surgery and not have the oophorectomy, the the gynecological surgery, but I I breastfed my two children and I kind of would want to have done that for all of them if I could. And it, it just, there's all these other impacts that maybe people aren't aware of or like the clinicians that we're dealing with really aren't aware of. Um, so you're you're going through newlywed life, you're told, start having your family. And then every single decision you make after that is when do we finish our family? How many children do we want? You know, how long can we put this off? Because essentially that's what it is. I'm getting closer and closer and closer to an age where I know my risk is increasing every single year. So it's extremely hard to say that's it. You know, that's let's just call it here. And then to make that decision. And I made that decision with my husband last kind of maybe August time to September. And I went into my team in St. James's in September. I said, right, we're ready now. And then to be told at that point that it's going to be at least at least two years longer down the line before you can have the surgery. It just I don't know, it just kind of adds insult to injury really on top of everything else because it's a long time to wait around. It's it's actually a perfect amount of time to have another child. So all of these things that you've worked yourself up and you've said, yes, this is it, this is definite now, you're you're left with an awful lot of thinking time, you know. Um, some people might say that's good. Some people might say that's bad. I would say personally, when you get to that point in the decision-making process, as a young couple to say, you know what, the priority needs to be the children that we've already brought into the world. You need to be well for them. You need to be around for them. Um, and this is what we're going to do as a family. When you make that call and then for the breaks to be put on it is very, very hard, really hard. And Ashing, you were explaining that it feels like a ticking time bomb. So if you have an off week or feel a little tired, are you constantly thinking, is this it? Is, is cancer here? I honestly check every day in the shower. That's what I do. It's it's part of my daily routine now. I will look for lumps. Now, I know everybody checks on the first of the month and we would encourage that as well. But I think when you are in a situation where you know cancer could be on your doorstep at any time, it's a terrible burden to have to live with. So I would check every day. I have to say, I don't let it consume me. Um, I'm proactive with my mental health. I, I really do try and like see... Uh, my counsellor, if I need it, I've got great support around me here. But I, I know that I'm one of the strong ones in this. Um, I think because of how much I'm immersed in the BRCA community here, um, I, I'm not that I'm desensitised to it, but a BRCA is on my plate every day, you know, and I'm, I'm dealing with women who are in much worse situations than me. I'm, de- you know, we're dealing with women who are going through breast cancer treatments. And I think I've, I've, got great support from the Marie Keating Foundation and that they've trained us 
to be mentally strong in order to be able to help other women. Um, it doesn't make it any less easy, you know, when when checking your breast for lumps every single day is part of your regular routine. And it's living with the morning that you find something. And I think that's what I'm most scared about at the moment is it's not the actual process of doing it. It's it's the morning that I find something. And, and that's the worry that's constantly there, I suppose. And the fact that the weight would still continue, it's not like everything would just kick into gear either. And it's just a whole different route you have to come down. I can just really understand the frustration. And you work as a peer-to-peer support volunteer. So as you said, you're helping others to handle this news, these decisions. So I presume that really forced you to to pull your own self-care to the fore to make sure that you were in a strong place to enable you to help others. I think the the, the lack of services and and this isn't a, new, a unique thing to the Marie Keating Foundation. We'll know this from across the board in Ireland. Charities plug holes constantly where the HSE fails in this country. And one of the, I suppose, I fight battles as they come. And when you're on a journey like this, different elements of the journey become more um, important to you personally. Back in kind of 2016, 17, 18, when I first spoke at the Marie Keating, the inaugural Marie Keating Foundation um, uh, conference for families with BRCA, I told my story and it was quite raw actually at the time. And when I look back, even to see how vulnerable I was back then, I still wasn't quite right in myself. Um, I spoke about the lack in the hole for psychological support for families coming through, getting this news. There was nowhere to turn to and there was nowhere to go. And that's, that's how really the Marie Keating Foundation stepped in and said, you know what, if we could get a cohort of, of people together, if we could get women from different stages of the journey, um, so women who have had a breast cancer diagnosis and subsequently found out they've BRCA, women who have found out they've BRCA and, and have had their mastectomies and their um, and their oophorectomies, their gynecological surgeries. If we can find women like me who have just got their news but are young and starting their family. And we, we got together and we had a cohort, a team of women at all different elements and stages of their journey. And the Marie Keating Foundation got us together and said, if you're willing to do this, we will train you. We will give you the support you need. And then we are now... The people who, when a woman gets their, her result and has nowhere to turn, they turn to the Marine Keating Foundation um, and they will get one of their peers. So somebody similar to them, whatever stage of their journey in life they're on, they will get matched with one of our peer supporters and that person will pick up the phone and will listen. They'll say, let me let me hear you. What do you need to, to know? We don't give medical advice. There's a nurse in Rekeating who will do that for you. But we are just the people who are there at the end of the phone to have a cry, to have a chat, to have a laugh, whatever it is that they need um, at that time. And I suppose in many ways, it means that your own journey becomes public and that's okay. That's something that I've chosen to do. Um, and at this point in the journey, at the time, it was psychological resources, which still aren't there, by the way. But that was the part of the journey that I was on personally that I really wanted to shout louder for. And we, and we got them re-keating peer supporters into place for that. Um, and now we're at the stage of my personal journey where I'm waiting for my surgery. There is women on their stage of this bracket journey who are screaming for HRT treatment. And that is something that I'm not on at the moment. But there's 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 holes at every point on the bracket journey, if I'm being honest. Um, and from an advocacy point of view, it is always easier to to talk about and to scream louder for the piece that you're looking for yourself, you know, while supporting other women. Um, but it is, it's a lovely position to be in, to be able to say, 
look, I'm managing this myself. I'm angry about it. I'm absolutely strong enough to do it. And if I can help somebody else along the way, that's the most important thing. It really is. I want to read um, a, a short piece um, from the press release that, that went out about your your formal complaint. And it's from the Assistant Director of Nursing, Bernie Carter at the Marie Keating Foundation. And it says there is up to a 15 to 18 month waiting time to get genetic testing done in the public system for the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene. The waiting times for risk reducing double mastectomy with reconstruction can be two years or much longer in some cases. These surgeries can save lives and reduce a person born female from developing breast cancer. People are putting themselves forward for the huge surgeries to reduce their risks of cancer, to be there for their children, and yet the doors are closed on them. Women are getting cancer while they are waiting for a test. This is simply inexcusable. However, we must acknowledge the great progress that is currently being made in Ireland in addressing those issues and the great work that's being done by individuals working in the area of genetics. We acknowledge that the HSE is now addressing the issues outlined, but we do hope that waiting times will be reduced for both genetic testing and to get those life-saving, risk-reducing surgeries. So does this come down to to funding and prioritising of funding, Ashling? At the moment, it's all going in the curing of cancer, which nobody wants to see money taken away from there. But as you said, if we started looking more into the genetics and the prevention in the first place, that would, would make far more sense. Absolutely. And I think it's it's acknowledged within the community that in the last year or so, um, strides have been made. Um, there is a new steering committee there that are going to look at genetics and genomics specifically, and they're looking to hopefully have a, a report by the end of 2022. And a bracket needs assessment for, for patients was carried out as well. And the first draft of that was published back in April. But ultimately, I suppose for the women that are in the system at the moment, what we really need to hear from the HSC and from the NCCP is how much ring-fenced funding for prophylactic surgeries are going to be offered up in the budget this year or the plans for this year. We really need to know how much protected theatre time they're going to give to the one surgeon in St. James's, one one person to deal with all of these all of these women coming through. Um, that surgeon needs protected theatre time. The surgery that I'm opting for can be 10 to 12 hours. They need dedicated support staff, they need dedicated theatre time. And ultimately, we need a commitment to the expansion of all the services, be it genetic or be it once you're referred into St. James's or to any of the hospitals. That can't wait. And I suppose why you want to know how much funding is going to be allocated to that department and to those things specifically, because unfortunately, the HSC seems absolutely incapable of running these two things parallel to one, each other, one another. People with BRCA are constantly being pitched against symptomatic breast cancer patients. And in some instances, there are symptomatic breast cancer patients who are also BRCA carriers. Um, there doesn't seem to be an ability to have these two clinics running parallel to one another. And in the language that's used by the clinicians, in the language that was used by Richard himself in his letter that was returned to me from um, the NCCP, where essentially he, he said, uh, women with breast cancer are being prioritised. And yes, we understand that. And absolutely, as you just said, no one wants that taken away. But it's not helpful to continue the rhetoric that BRCA carriers are somehow taking up space in the he- in the health system that should be allocated to symptomatic breast cancer patients. Because ultimately, 
those women are going to wind up with symptomatic breast cancer patients in the system. And I think therein lies the problem. There needs to be dedicated, ring-fenced funding so that no matter how many women present with a symptomatic breast cancer, the woman who was due to have her preventative surgery is still looked after and taken care of. And we just don't see that there is a capacity, a competence. I don't know what it is, but they just cannot get their heads around prevention is cure. It's 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 mind boggling. You know, the genetic service in St. James's is operating at 70 percent below the European average standard. There's so many things that are need to line up for this to be, be to, to work out better. There is no, for example, there is no degree in genetics in Ireland. If you want to become a genetics counsellor, you've got to go to Scotland or the UK. That's I mean, if you want to start right back at the very beginning of all this, there's something to look at. We are sending our genetics counsellors out abroad to study and we're probably not getting a lot of them back. That's that's one thing that could be looked at at a very basic level, but it doesn't actually help the women who are in the system now. And what we need to know is before anybody reports on this again, before we get the next statement or the next you know, draft publication from all of these talking shops that are going on at the moment, how are women this year going to be helped? How are the, the, the services going to be expanded this year immediately for the women who are already waiting and waiting and waiting two, three years now? Because we sat with the NCCP back in, in March 2020, just before the world changed forever. And we highlighted to the NCCP all of the issues that we were having as a community. They, it kind of strikes me now, like if the National Cancer Strategy is from 2017 to 2026, all of this work that's going on now feels like a bit of a, a child who's studying in a panic situation for their leaving cert, who knows they quite haven't done the work yet. And now they're taking out a massive highlighter and they're going through all these papers and they're going to say, yes, this is what's going on. But it's all a little bit too late. This really is too late for the women who are going to present with cancer now, this week. And the thing about it is, nobody is collating any data on this. And this is the scariest part of it all. If you are the head of the NCCP, or if you're just the people who are who are in charge of ensuring that the cancer strategy is rolled out, nobody has data on how many families, women or otherwise, are being treated under the, the bracket term in our hospitals in Ireland. When the NCCP were asked about this in written questions, they were asked how many people are waiting for prophylactic surgery? How many patients are looking for their oophorectomies? How many people were diagnosed with BRCA in Ireland between 2020 and 2021? Richard O'Leary couldn't give an answer to any of that. He essentially said, go back to the individual hospitals. So it's scary to us as a cohort of, of women who are fighting on this that there is actually no data on how many people with BRCA are being treated in our hospitals at the moment. There's no data on how many women are on these wait lists for prophylactic surgeries. And I would have a concern that there's another steering committee and there's a committee for this and a committee for that. But how have they any grasp on what needs to be done for Ireland if they can't even get the data together? So well, there's Yeah, it it's, just it, the yeah. mind absolutely boggles. And Ashling, I'm sorry that you have to shout so loud. I sincerely hope that your calls are answered. If people want to find out more information, they can go to mariekeating.ie forward slash bracket support. Ashling Drummond, I hope you're not waiting too much longer and you can remove that rock that you carry in your in, on, on your back down in West Cork and go on to live a, a happy and healthy life. Thank you so, so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. 
Now, I was invited to go to Off Grid in Bray in Wicklow, a private infrared sauna studio and recovery and wellness space. Owner Dean Smith first learned of the concept when living in Australia. I was keen to go. I am a bit of a heat demon and I love a sauna if there's one in a hotel I happen to be staying in. But I didn't realise the health benefits associated with regular deliberate heat therapy. There are lots of studies to show it helps with cardiovascular health, can reduce the chances of chronic disease, increase longevity and reduce stress levels. I went to meet Dean and we started with a tour. This morning I woke up all in heat. Yeah, so this is our studio space. Um, we kind of, as we started out the business, this was all completely different. This was um, almost like a lounge area, and then we had another compression therapy space over here. But as time went on, I really started to see the advantage of having an open space to invite people in for like different health and wellness um, days. And then also, as we grow as a business, we're slowly introducing yoga, Pilates, guided meditation to bring about a, a community sense to the business. It's great to have what we have here. But something I was always seeking to grow was a community. You know, was I ch- cherish the the idea of having people here and have just having conversation about what we do here and also creating a bit of a family environment. You know, so. And what's the response been like so far? Yeah, it's been incredible. Um, anybody that comes through the door has had nothing short of great to say about it, the place. But even more so, it's just been the interaction. I feel that people in that are willing to take the time to spend. The, the money on their, their health and well-being, they're, they're really moving in a positive direction in their life. So any conversations that I get to have with people, we get entranced into these very long and positive conversations. So yeah, it's, been, it's actually been incredible. Yeah, everyone has a story to tell about what's going on um, and to take that time out to invest in themselves. Yeah, I'm sure you hear all sorts. We have different spaces that are tailored towards different styles of people. So like that, if I take you in here, this is our individual space. So this is our single person contrast therapy suite. So you've got your, your private sauna and then you've also got your ice bath here. So the saunas that we use in house are infrared. So it's a full spectrum infrared sauna. The major difference between an infrared sauna and a finish sauna is that the infrared is heat through infrared light. So the saunas themselves are full spectrum. So they hold near, mid and far infrared light. And as you get into the sauna, the the noticeable differences inside the sauna is it's set to a little bit of a lower temperature so the sauna will operate at about 75 degrees as opposed to a traditional finish which runs at about 100 to 110 so because of that there's no flash heat to the skin so you know when you get into like a traditional finish sauna you might feel after five to ten minutes a bit overwhelming also because of the the burning or the letting off of steam which heats the air some people kind of find it discomforting on the nasal passage so they only spend a very short period of time in there the infrared it takes that away. So when you get in, the sauna starts off very gradually, very relaxing, but it's heating the body internally. So it's heating the cell, and then it's heating the blood, and it's heating the skin. So it's almost um, moving inwards, outwards, as opposed to a finish, which is moving outwards, inwards. So after half an hour in here, and the heart rate is up, you come out, you pop into the bath, you spend a minute to two in the bath, and that's really helping to release all those really healthy hormones for the mindset. And then you come back out, pop back inside, and this is where things get really interesting because having a, spent a half an hour in here, you've really built up an internal heat. Your internal organs are hot, your blood is hot. And then when you get into the bath and that rapid cooling of that, when you get out, you have this really euphoric sensation. But when you get back in the sauna, it takes a, it doesn't take a very long period of time to heat the surface of the skin back up. 
but you can still feel that very cold internal. So it's almost this very strange and unique sensation of, okay, the outside of my body is hot, but the inside of my body is extremely cold. So it's something that's very unique in the sense that you don't experience at any given stage on a normal day-to-day basis. My whole body is already rejecting the ice bath, <laughs> but I will. I give it a go for sure. It's, it's beautiful. Always, it's always good for the mindset. It's nice to have a little sauna to yourself. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're all keen to let go of the clutches of COVID, but even now, if I go into a steam or a sauna, I'm like, are we okay here? Yes. You know, so it's really nice to just be able to sit by yourself. Absolutely. And uh, one of the added bonuses that we have in the saunas is that they have full Bluetooth connectivity. So you're able to pop on a playlist or a guided meditation or a podcast and you're able to sit there with yourself and just relax. You can keep the phone outside. You've got some really tranquil music going on with the surround sound internal. So yeah, it's honestly having the... Uh, the, the benefit of the, the single person sauna is that it takes away that need to communicate. Whereas when you come in here, it's about conjuring up a great headspace for yourself. So having an hour to just close the door, forget about the world, go off grid, essentially. So yeah. that's, what, uh, that's what I'm going to try and do. I'm going to try and do nothing because there's just so few times in life where we literally do nothing. Even if I sit down and relax, I start scrolling, I start texting, I start doing a million things. So I'm not even going to listen to music. I'm just going to sit in silence and enjoy yeah Yeah. and you know what we have a lot of people who do who tend to do that Uh, one of the biggest things is like when i when we go in and i'm like oh would you like me to connect up to bluetooth people are like nope i don't want to because they know they're not going to bring the phone into the sauna they're like no i don't even want to see it i'm going to switch it off i'm just going to sit here with my own thoughts and i'm going to enjoy it and like i was saying the beauty of of these style of sauna is that it's a journey it's not really um it's not that really intense flash quick heat of the body which is also incredible they both have very very stimulating and positive healthy benefits to the body but the beauty of this is a it's it's almost a process so the first 10 to 15 minutes feels like a nice gradual uh, kind of chilling on a beach sense and then as time goes on and the body starts to really induce a heavy sweat and the heart rate starts to whoop that's when you start to say oh that's actually getting really hot in here and then it's only after you push past the point where you think okay i need to get out if you can say okay i know i need to get my body wants to get out of here but i'm going to aim for another two minutes in here that's when you start to be conjuring up a more powerful mindset because the body doesn't want to be in the situation and the mind realizes that and it's actually putting the body to play now so yeah you're, you're having this like little internal battle so you're conjuring up willpower so yeah, yeah. which is incredible so it's a psychological as well as a physical battle absolutely Okay, great. I can't delay it any longer. Shall I get myself organised to get in? Yeah, absolutely. Right, so this is me in the infrared sauna. Um, Yeah, I mean, it does actually feel like a more gradual heat. Um, doesn't have the sort of barbecue in the corner, you know, with the hot coals that you pour the water on. It's just the small wooden box and the two infrared panels on either side of me. Very comfortable. So I'm just going to sit here for the 30 minutes um, until Dean comes back in to uh, record me getting into the ice bath, which should be interesting. And he just told me before he left that Bobby Kerr was here a few months back and gave it a go. Um, He lasted in the ice bath 15 seconds. Of course, I at least want to do 16 now. Right, so I'm just out of my 30 minutes in the sauna. And yeah, I have a sheen of sweat all over my body. I'm definitely heated up. I felt the kind of inside 
out thing. It's more gradual, but I mean, you still 100% feel it. Uh, the last three minutes were the hardest because I knew I was getting to the finish line. And then I was thinking, oh God, the ice bath is coming. <laughs> and the ice bath is coming now. So what temperature is this set at? So the bath is set at four degrees. Okay. So like in terms of uh, the Irish Sea, Irish Sea in the height of winter is about seven and a half to eight degrees on average. So yeah, it's pretty cold. Okay, so how long are we thinking I should aim to, and you're gonna time me, I see you don't have a stopwatch, we're just doing this. No, I've got, I've got the phone, so we'll go, we'll go off the stopwatch on the phone, don't worry. Okay. All right, I'm going first. <laughs> how are you feeling there, Claire? It's weirdly, um, like it's a shock, but it's quite relaxing. I'm lucky that I did the ice bath with Neil O'Muraku. People will know him as Breathe with Neil. He's the Wim Hof instructor. So I wasn't as hot as I am now, but at least I've learned from that to just regulate my breathing and kind of talk to myself. And instead of freaking out, I'm like, no. I can do this. So I've got a bit of that. Um, I do tend to put my shower to cold quite often at the end. So I find even, do you know, if hot water runs out um, in the house, I don't mind having a cold shower because I think between doing that and getting in the sea, my tolerance for cold water has improved. So I think all of those things are working for me. Give us a time check there. Absolutely. We're, we're sitting at about a minute and a half right now. Stop it. Should I dip the head under? Absolutely. Okay. I think I can get to two minutes and then we'll do a little head dip. So you're actually coming up on about three minutes now, so we've just gone way past the, the mark. It feels as good and as it feels as testing, but as like that weird pleasure pain vibe that you get in the sauna but obviously it's the exact opposite I like I'm, I'm weirdly enjoying this <laughs> okay Whew. I'm gonna dip the head and take it to another level and then out <sighs> it's a bit tricky three two one <laughs> Okay, it's addictive cold water, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. That's pretty, that's four minutes. That's pretty intense, like. Okay, we did it. Feels good. So back into the sauna now back for another sauna. 30 minutes. Absolutely. And then back to the cold. Okay. Yeah, I feel really relaxed. I feel all tingly all over this is good this is a great space you've created here thank you so much i appreciate the feedback and you've lots of great plans don't you for building a community and really immersing yourself in health and wellness absolutely i think uh the sky's the limit for what we have here you know and like that it's about what we can provide to the community that's going to help us grow um, i want to bring people in here and start exposing them to what it's like to ingrain health and well-being into their life you know building out a health and well-being lifestyle not just a once in a like once every year experience or like a spa kind of retreat environment 
this is something that you could be doing on a, a weekly basis that's going to help with your mindset and also with your body well i'll definitely be back i want to do date in the the double with my husband and i'll be back to try catherine's shiatsu massage so thank you so much for having me no problem it's a pleasure thanks so much for coming in So yes, I would recommend Off Grid hours wild away in there in what felt like such a short space of time. And I left feeling absolutely invigorated. That could be partly to do with the fact that I beat Bobby Kerr and was able to stay in the ice bath for four minutes. But it is worth checking out and you'll find them on Instagram. They're at offgrid.space. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and Jojo Cordoza who was on sound and thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.